So the, the first major point that I want to think on as we introduce this, and this is an introduction lesson, why meditate on these things? And I, I guess I said some things, but I, I really want to look at, like, why does God want us to meditate on these things, right? I mean, I, I really want to start this series really trying to emphasize the value in what we're going to be studying this year. Uh, so Luke 24, and I'll have these passages on the, on the board, on these initial passages. But in Luke 24, verse 27, there's two men who are on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's making appearances at this time to people. And there's two men who are on their way to Emmaus, and Jesus approaches them without them recognizing him. And he hears them talking about his... Uh, some of the events that had just happened in Jerusalem with his crucifixion, his death, and they've been hearing rumors about his resurrection. He asks them what they've been talking about, and they tell him about Jesus, who had been crucified, and hearing rumors about his resurrection. But they don't really believe at all, right, that he'd been risen from the dead. So eventually in verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. One of the goals of this study is that just like, uh, and I'll, I'll go, go back to it. Um, you'll also watch the animations again as I go forward. But um, you'll notice I titled this The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha. Really one of the goals is to understand how our perspective and our understanding of the living person of Jesus can be deepened, it can be broadened, that the things that Jesus did and that what, what he taught and even the convictions we receive from the cross, how all of those things are touched and expanded through the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, so one of the values of the lives of Elijah and Elisha is it gives us greater insight into ultimately the gospel and of Christ himself. Another passage, Romans 15, verse 4. Um, this is a passage that we'll probably uh, be thinking more about uh, in our Bible study um, plans for the year uh, going through the kingdom of Israel. Um, Paul in Romans 15 verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures uh, we might have hope. Um, and that would include Elijah and Elisha. So it's, it's not just that their lives and the way that those things were orchestrated and written about teach us ultimately about Jesus himself. It's that they were written and the lessons were given so that we could be instructed we could gain perseverance in our faith so that we could gain encouragement and hope. And, and all of that, not just in some like theological sense or uh, in, in theory, but that we would be motivated to mature further in our faith while at the same time being motivated by the hope that the joys of the Lord and the encouragement of God rests in a deepened and matured faith that requires uh, really the next point, suffering and patience. James 5, 10 and 11, uh, James writes that as an example of suffering and patience, we should take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example because we count them blessed who endured. One thing we're going to see uh, in just a moment is how difficult the time was that Elijah and Elisha lived in. And yet God revived the nation in really significant ways through their ministry. And God helped them and encouraged them and preserved them in times where their service to God meant sacrificing things of self that would have incurred continuous suffering and the need for patience in that. Um, 
One of the things I heard recently uh, about a mark of maturing faith that I really appreciated. A maturing faith understands the need and the joy of sacrificing wants for spiritual needs. And that's something we're going to see in Elijah and Elisha's lives. Like, I don't really understand what they personally wanted out of life. Like, I don't know what kind of people they were outside of their service to the Lord or what kind of ambitions they may have had at one time outside of their ministry as prophets. Because they sacrificed everything that they may have personally wanted in their lives for what was the greatest spiritual need in their time. And what James tells us is that these men serve as examples to motivate us to see the blessing of maturing to that point, having endurance in that. Last thing is James 5.17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature much like ours. Uh, I don't know about you, but I find that uh, a little bit hard to believe. Uh, He performed a lot of miracles. He continuously called down fire from heaven, and he went up in like a fiery whirlwind to heaven. Um, He was also a person who dressed very strangely. He wore camel's hair, uh, much like John the Baptist, and he was a really hairy and strange man. Uh, So it's kind of hard for me to relate to Elijah. But really, ultimately, one thing that God wants us to understand is it's not that Elijah himself was really very special, much like David and Moses and Abraham were really of themselves not very special. What was really special about these men is that they simply had a faith that God was able to work through to glorify his name in their time. And they had to wrestle with the same difficulties. They had to make sacrifices of self in the same ways that we do in order to choose to do God's will when it's difficult for us to make that choice. And one of the things that I hope that we're able to uncover as we look more closely into their lives is the greatness of God. Not the greatness of Elijah, not the greatness of Elisha, although these men, because of how God used them, were great men. Ultimately, it's God himself who's glorified in using common, weak vessels of clay to demonstrate his glory in times when it was necessary. Uh, So we need, when we study this, to not see Elijah and Elisha just as men, but rather to try to see the greatness of God through them and see that unfold in their lives. Uh, so the next thing I, I want to do, um, and I think, I think this will be helpful uh, because of something uh, Leon Malden said. I'd like to take some time to outline the time frame that these men were living in. Uh, Leon Malden last year in a gospel meeting uh, that we held with him preaching at the beginning of last year, he mentioned that with when you, when you put yourself into the history of Israel, it can be very helpful to see what's happened behind and to know what's going to come ahead because that really anchors you in having purpose with where you are. Uh, so that's, that's what I'd like to really have us understand, where, where we're coming from and where God is going in the timeline. And I'd just like to overview this just briefly. So Abraham. So obviously is not the start of God's working with the world. But Abraham is really the man of faith that God chose in protecting the seed of trust that was in this man uh, to create both the nation of Israel, but then ultimately to bring Christ into the world and the church as we are today. And all of that was God proving his glory and his ability to use the simplicity of a certain quality of faith to have greater power and greater influence than all the powers of the world and of Satan. So in choosing Abraham, 
Isaac was his son of promise, and then Jacob was the son of Isaac that God chose to create a nation from. And he renamed him Israel, with his 12 sons eventually entering into Egypt. And Moses, about 430 years after the time of Abraham, Moses was obviously God's chosen deliverer to bring about the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 15, that his nation would be a nation of people delivered out of bondage and slavery. And he redeemed them to become a people who are united around the dwelling of God among them. These were a holy people. They were a nation of people who were purified, redeemed, reconciled, recreated, to have a new identity through which God could glorify his name. And then Joshua, God used him to enter the people into the land that Abraham wandered, a land of promise. And in this land, God was intending to spread the knowledge of his glory to all the nations around them, even to the ends of the earth. And eventually, the kingdom was established under Solomon. So when they came into Canaan, there was the period of judges. And all of this, from the time of Moses to the establishment of the kingdom, was about 450 years. Uh, That's in Acts 15, by the way. These dates are just in certain scriptures. You just put them in, put them together. Um, But in the period of the judges, God's people were continuously wandering into idolatry, and God was raising up judges to deliver them and to teach them. Uh, But eventually, as the condition of the people grew worse and worse, God uh, sent Samuel as a prophet and judge to the people, the final judge. And as the people in the time of Samuel requested a king, God gave them Saul. And through Saul's disobedience, uh, God raised up David, the man after his own heart, who would be delivered from all his distresses because of his faith. That just like Abraham, God would prove that the quality of faith that began in Abraham could overcome the world and would be a seed that God would use to spread his glory into all the nations. And so because of David's faith, Solomon, his son, united the kingdom together in building the temple. And when the temple was built, uh, God's nation was united. They were prosperous. People were coming from all nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It looked like that that was the period of time that fulfilled all of the promises to Abraham, at least in a physical way. But because of Solomon's idolatry, because of the foreign women he married, he became loyal to foreign gods. So God split the nation after Solomon. And as the nation from the time of Moses was almost on what you could think about as a controlled uphill, even, all the, even with all the downhill turns they kept taking, after Solomon's time, the people were on a controlled plummet. So after Solomon and the kingdom split, uh, the, the nation inevitably, after 380 years, would be totally eradicated by the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon. Jeroboam became the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, became the first king of Judah. In Judah, all of the kings would come from David, and there would be a line of kings who would faithfully preserve that lineage. Jeroboam was not from King David, and the nation of Israel in the north suffered a continuous um, surge of new kings and new dynasties because of the unfaithfulness of every single king that reigned in North Israel. Uh, And then finally, the kingdom was later restored after its destruction. After 70 years of captivity, you have books like Daniel that speak of Daniel's time in captivity in Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah were men who came back to Jerusalem to aid in its rebuilding. 
and then Esther was the queen of uh, Persia um, in the exile as well. Um, and the restoration of that kingdom, one of the things that was accomplished was the people were preserved as a humbled remnant and their hearts were in a humbled condition that would be adequate for God to lead into the coming of Christ into a humbled nation of people. Uh, so where we are is about 60 years past the time of Solomon. Uh, if you look on the chart here, um, Samaria is, sorry, my hands are so, so, so shaky. Uh, Samaria is right here, which became, became the capital of Israel in the time of uh, Omri and Ahab. Bethel and Dan, north and south, our Jeroboam initially put idols in Israel to keep people from going to Judah to the temple to worship there. And those idols in Bethel and Dan remained until its destruction by Assyria. You'll see Jerusalem is down here, really not too far from the border of Israel. You'll notice the scale of miles here in the top left. But this really is, is really not that much of a distance between the nations. So they they had a lot of interaction between one another and one nation would have heard about what was happening in the other nation uh, as well. Aram up here in the northeastern section of the map. The main conflict we're going to see over and over again is Israel with Aram. And Elijah and Elisha will speak to the kings in different ways to help them to understand God's view of these conflicts, right? There would be times like in 1 Kings 20, uh, Ahab would gain victory over Aram, but ultimately in Ramoth Gilead, which is over here to the east, there were continuous conflicts over Ramoth Gilead because it was right on the border of the Aramean territory and the Israelite territory. Ahab would die at Ramoth Gilead, uh, and that would be a place of continuous conflict between Israel and the Arameans. Um, throughout uh, the history of, of Israel here. Um, so one of the things I want to do um, before we move on to the final point, I want to show you the condition of the nations uh, leading into Elijah's time frame. Go to 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 9. Ahijah the prophet uh, is speaking about Jeroboam and he tells him, you also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. So Jeroboam is being told that there's nobody who's been as wicked as him. And all the people who have ever reigned or had authority over Israel. Well, if you look forward... In uh, chapter 16, verse 25, uh, chapter 16, verse 25, after God speaks against Jeroboam and eliminates his entire lineage, uh, Baasha was the next king who reigned of a different dynasty, but he was just as wicked as Jeroboam, so God then rose up Zimri uh, to eliminate Baasha's uh, dynasty, but then Zimri was wicked, so then Omri eliminated Zimri. Uh, well, in in 1 Kings 16, verse 25, you'll notice that things aren't exactly improving. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So God is very hands-on. He's interacting with the nation. He's bringing the lineage of kings who are wicked to a complete end. And yet, the series of kings only continue to get progressively worse. And if you look further in chapter 16... 
Uh, look at verse 30. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So if it wasn't bad enough that Omri was more evil even than all these kings who were already unfaithful, who were already idolaters, Ahab took the wickedness of his father Omri even further. Look at verse 31 through 34. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of, si- of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days... Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So it's almost like this was a time when the kings of Israel were trying as hard as they could to bring upon themselves every curse that God had previously spoken. Uh, Jericho, Joshua had pronounced a curse on that city that anyone who rebuilt it was going to build it at the loss of their oldest and youngest, which is what happened here, right? A complete disregard for God, a complete disregard for his promises. You just try to imagine. You're somebody who has a zeal for God. You love God. And this is the condition of the nation you live in. And this is not like America or another nation where, you know, we hope that people would convert around us and we hope that the government would do things that help to progress the gospel. I think a better way to think about it, Israel was like one large church. Like all of these people were God's people by covenant. These were not like lost sinners and Gentiles who did not know God. These were God's own covenantal people who were doing these things against God to provoke him to anger. To make it even worse in some ways, Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. If you look on the chart here, Asa reigned down here in Judah 41 years. Uh, Jehoram lived 17 years and his son for three years. You'll notice that that's not quite the full length of Jeroboam's reign of 22 years. Asa encompassed all of these kings. Ahab began to reign in the latter days of Asa's reign. Asa had about four or five years left in his reign when Ahab began to rule. Asa was an incredible king. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and the high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Not one king in Israel ever did that. Not one. I want you to imagine, let's say North, or I'm sorry, South Carolina. Just imagine that the government begins falling apart. Everything is corrupt. The politicians are corrupt. Crime skyrockets. And you, you, you imagine how quickly the news of such a dramatic change in their system, how, how that would spread and we would hear about those things, right? But you imagine as well, as close as Judah and Jerusalem were to Israel, imagine again that you're somebody who loves God. 
You're somebody who has indignation for God's ways to be followed, for his promises to be fulfilled. And let's say that instead of things falling apart and you hearing about that, that you're in South Carolina, things are falling apart, and you hear in Georgia that there are renovations happening in the system of Georgia's government where crime is being stopped, laws are being made that are upholding justice, the, the, the economy is thriving, people are being taught, education is thriving. Would you move away? <laughs> Would you stay in South Carolina? It gets even better, though. Um, in verse 7, at the end of the verse, Asa acknowledges that because of his faithfulness, God gave them rest on every side. Whereas Israel was going through constant conflict with the nations around them. So there's peace in Judah. In the times when all of these kings are killing one another in civil wars, they're warring against Aram and continuously losing and losing their land. But it gets, it gets even worse. Look at verse 9. Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army. Do you see how many people were in that Ethiopian army? One million people. To my knowledge, that's the biggest army that the Bible ever numbers. One million people came against Judah. And because Asa turned to the Lord, they won that battle. So you put, you put all of this together. You're in South Carolina, right? The systems, it's fallen apart. It's not a safe place for you to live anymore. It's not a good place to have a family. Uh, the education system is collapsing. The government system is completely corrupt. And you're here in Georgia that there's all these renovations happening. It's prosperous. It's peaceful. Education is thriving. But then you hear that like a massive army, an unthinkable army, came against Georgia. And Georgia won the battle. They won the battle and they became even more prosperous afterwards. Would you stay in South Carolina if you heard these things? Look at chapter 15, verse 22 through 24. I'm sorry, uh, 12 through 14. Chapter 15, 12 through 14. Uh, this is Asa taking the goodness of his reign even further. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, verse, the verse before that, um, verse 9. Uh, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, the territory of Israel, Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So a lot of people, they did leave. And they were right in leaving. So you imagine being Elijah. You know all these good things are happening in Judah. God's ways are being faithfully taught. The nation is thriving. They're winning battles. The kings and the system of government are faithful to the Lord. And here you are in Israel, in the worst time in its history. And instead of going to Judah to enjoy the prosperity of the faithfulness to God, you choose to stay in Israel to suffer and preach the word of God faithfully for the rest of your life. And you never get to see it change. Do you think there's lessons there? You think there's 
a sermon that could be preached from that point. That in a time when you have every reason to leave, in a time when Israel is at its darkest place, God reveals his glory in the Old Testament in one of the greatest ways. And we begin to understand why when Jesus was transfigured, when he could choose two men, of all the people of faith of David, of great people like Joshua, he chooses Moses and Elijah. So, I'm just going to end talking about some simple principles and applications. Um, there's going to be about six of these. I'm not going to go into really great detail, but I think just some general things that can get our minds working about what makes all of this so valuable. Ahab and the kings did not need to earn God's love. I think one of the greatest lessons we learn in all of this, when we're thinking about the story actually being about God, you know, God could have killed Ahab any time. That would not have been hard for God to do. And God eventually does kill Ahab himself. Some random arrow gets shot, and God guides this arrow to strike him in a just opening in his armor, and he dies. God could have done it any time. In fact, Ahab spent much of his reign under the looming judgment that God had pronounced against him that he was going to end him and his household. And he lived under the words of that judgment against him for a long time. What Ahab could have understood, God's love for him had no condition. It was simply a matter of whether he would believe and accept and comprehend his love. Folks, one thing we have to understand, we don't, we don't earn God's love. And as easy as it is to say that, I have a very hard time living in, an, in a way that's properly oriented toward that understanding. If I really understood the degree of God's love, I would be so much more motivated to change my life and talk about Jesus to people. One of the things that I hope that this series will help us with is to be more motivated in comprehending the greatness of God's love. Ahab had the choice of whether he would live in the approval of God. But no doubt, God loved Ahab dearly. What looked like God's failure was actually only furthering his glory. It's very unusual. Um, it looked like Ahab and the nation, they had overthrown God's government. I mean, they set up in Asherah and built a temple for Baal right in Samaria, the capital of the nation. So it looked like man had fully succeeded in driving God out of the nation. And Ahab, what we'll see is, he certainly had no interest in being held accountable to God. One thing we realize when we really think about the lives of Elijah and Elisha, the kings were not ruling the nation. God was ruling his nation through the prophets. And the extent of their sin only went so far as God allowed the freedom for it to go. And all of these things that God did with the nation, just how much it, it folds in parallel to Christ, his teaching, his example, God was using what looked like his failure to actually be an achievement of displaying the glory of Christ very clearly. Um, and again, I just have to ask, do you think there's important lessons to learn from that? That at times when it looks like there's no lesson to learn at all, 
at times when it looks like faith has no value, at times when it looks like uh, God is not the answer, can it be that those times can most fully magnify the power of God working through faith? In Luke 1.17, mentions that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know what's interesting about that, though, is Elijah never performed any miracles, or John, (laughs) rather, never performed any miracles. Elijah performed a lot of miracles. Um, But John the Baptist, performing no miracles, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, Something I think we're going to see more and more as we go through this, even though the miracles teach lessons, even though there's points that are pulled out from those things, ultimately what, where the power was was not in the miracles. First uh, Kings 19 will teach us that when Elijah flees to Mount Horeb and God's power was not in the flame or the wind, but in the still small voice that spoke. The indignation of God, wanting people to repent and turn to the living God, not just to a set of rules or a place, not even to a certain people. God worked through Elijah in a time when Elijah and Elisha weren't telling the people, keep the law, keep the law, go to the temple, keep the law. Their message was, turn back to the person of God. Because if somebody will turn to God, if they'll really humble themselves to see God for who he is, everything else will be sought after afterward. Just like Second Chronicles 15, the people who defected from Israel to Judah, those were people who knew God. And they were willing to leave the inheritance of their fathers to be in a place where God's will was being followed faithfully, Right? This series of lessons will help us to serve God himself, to see the power and the importance of God's living nature and all the things and all the glory that relate to his living person. Um, There's something I want to take just a minute to to look at in the scriptures. God's work through Elijah did revive the nation. Uh, The nation survived after Ahab's death for another 130 years. The nation should have ended before Ahab ever came. should have never been allowed to erect any altars to any other idols. Back in Exodus 22, God said, if anyone erects any altar to any other god, they're to be utterly destroyed. Period. 130 years. And the kings never turned to the law of God or wanted to fully serve God. They were all evil. Look, uh, particularly... Um, I think I have these scriptures on the other side here. Second uh, Kings chapter two verse three. Uh, so beyond obviously Elijah inspiring Elijah uh, inspiring Elisha to continue his ministry and willfully serve God and continue on with uh, having faith in a difficult time. Um, if you look at verse uh, verse three, I'm sorry, chapter two verse three. The sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from over you today? In the beginning of 2 Kings, you find out that there were prophets everywhere. In in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah runs to Mount Horeb 
thinking he's the only one left to serve God. But when God persuades him to return and continue in his work, prophets become the norm of the nation. Look further in verse 5. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho. That city that was cursed, that Hael had built at the loss of his oldest and youngest, God had transformed the curse of that city into a blessing. Jericho is no longer a cursed city. It was a city filled with prophets. You look down at verse 7. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance. Prophets at Bethel, the place where the golden calf was erected. Prophets at Jericho, the cursed city. 50 prophets watching Elisha and Elijah cross the Jordan River. You look at chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, Behold now the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, each of us take from there a beam, and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. There were so many prophets in the time of Elisha. They had to make new cities for them to live in so that they would have enough space to fit them all. The kings never really ultimately really changed. But God did change the nation. I think the reason why God could justify 150 more years adding on to Israel's lifespan was because in rebuking the proud, he was appealing to the humble. And what God was doing through Elijah and Elisha was inspiring other common people to arise to the charge of serving God in a very difficult time. If we'll listen, if we'll pay attention, just like it said in James and in Romans, we'll be motivated ourselves to act on our faith in new and wonderful ways as we receive encouragement from God's work in these men, just as these other prophets. Um, this is one of the most important points I want to focus on. God worked with the nation as it was. God knew where he was taking the nation. He knew that ultimately it was about getting Jesus into the world. And something that God in his self-control so brilliantly hides is just how painful it is for him to endure the losses of his work with his people. But you know, God didn't choose to ignore Israel and only work with Judah because of Asa's faithfulness and reforms. He didn't give up on the nation to hasten the day when Christ would come into the world and just bring it more quickly by giving up. God worked with the nation and did as much as he could with it as it was. I want to tell you why that's such an important example. It's so easy with brethren in the local church to fantasize or wish for some ideal and to think, you know, I'd just be so much more motivated to serve God here if things were just more like this. Or if there were maybe better Bible classes or more Bible classes, maybe then I'd be more motivated to serve God here. Or, you know, if the people were more motivated, if the people were more encouraging, or I could make better connections, maybe then I'd really serve God here. But, you know, God worked with the reality of what he had, and he revived the nation in miraculous ways because of the faith of men who were willing to work with what the reality was in their time. This is a very encouraging group, but, you know, we can be better. And what we ultimately need is workers. 
We need people who aren't demotivated or discouraged by the fact that God's people need help, that we need to sacrifice ourselves upon the altar of the service of the faith of others. We need to learn to rejoice in that work. And we need to learn to have joy in the sacrifice of ourselves so others can be exalted and commended to the Lord more fully. God worked with the nation as it was. And finally, the last principle. I think it can be helpful to look at God's example as a husband and father to Israel as well. Um, in Hosea, God relates his relationship as, uh, to Hosea as one who's going and getting a wife who is unfaithful and then reconciling after she's abandoned him for other people. But he also relates in the prophets his relationship like a father. One of the amazing things about God's example as a husband, God wasn't basing his commitment upon the response of his people. God was exceeding the commitment of his covenant that had been previously given. And the point of that isn't to make you like feel bad for not being exactly like that in your relationship. It's, it's just to demonstrate how incredible and perfect God's example was in this time. He was looking for every opportunity to demonstrate the reality of his continued affection for Israel, not waiting for their response, not relying upon their response, but choosing to be committed and faithful even despite them as a husband to his nation. God was creating opportunities for interaction, even when they weren't interested in interacting with him. Um, As a father, God did not discipline Israel out of just random outbursts. Everything he did with Israel was out of view of Christ and in self-control to discipline them for their good, to help them to reflect upon the lessons that would draw them closer to him. And God's focus was not on worldly achievement because Omri and Ahab were mighty men who had much strength and many accomplishments. The word doesn't really focus on those things. God is of the utmost concern about the well-being of their spiritual condition. And when that's unwell, nothing else really seems to matter to God. And he's willing even to deprive them of the ability to succeed in other affairs in order for them to understand the need to succeed in faith. So when we look through the lives of Elijah and Elisha, there's more lessons than just the men. There's lessons about God. There's lessons about being a good father, a good husband. There's lessons about raising children. May God help us and bless us to gain these things more fully as we study through their lives. If there's anything that you need at this time, whether it's to confess anything before the church or ask for encouragement or even to obey the gospel, come as we stand and sing the invitation song.